Well, I'll go ahead and take a guess that you may not know that this upcoming Tuesday, August 15th, is a very important date, somewhere around the world at least, marks the anniversary of the founding of the nation of India. I'm also going to take a guess and say, you don't, know long, you don't know how long India has been a nation. How, how long would you say India has been a nation? Would you be surprised if I told you only 70 years? August 15th, 2017 marks the 70-year anniversary of the founding of India. India didn't become an official nation until 1947, after World War II. Of course, the Indian civilization goes back thousands of years, but they were never a formal, unified nation until not that long ago. In more recent history, India was under the rule of the British. In the 1600s, the British and the Dutch competed for control over India. Eventually, the, the British won out and gained more and more control over India. At first, the British maintained their military in India just to protect their trading company. But over time, competing tribes started to employ the British to help them fight their little battles for favorable trade partnerships. And this marked the beginning of Britain's imperial rule in really the whole region. And they they came to rule over Java, Singapore, Burma, Hong Kong. By 1850, the British directly ruled almost all of India. And Queen Victoria took the title Empress of India. What's interesting, though, is there were never more than about 100,000 Indian, or uh, British, rather, living in India at any one time. And about 20,000 of them were the ruling class, and they ruled over 300 million Indians. Naturally, these colonists retained their British culture and customs. They brought them to India. In fact, you still see the stamp of British culture today all over India. I think it's why they love cricket so much. It didn't come from India. But most of the British... They never themselves really assimilated into Indian culture. They never really considered India their home. England was their home, and they desired mostly to recreate their homeland. And so they formed what were called hill stations. These were little communities up in the hill country where it was much cooler. They could escape the heat, and there they recreated a little slice of of England. They were like replicas of British towns. They had gyms and golf courses, tennis courts, ski resorts, art houses, opera houses, tea houses, all hallmarks of British culture. Those living there, they maintained the dress of Britain, the etiquette of Britain, the speech of Britain. Buildings were constructed with British architecture. They were mostly under British law. If you were transported there, you might think you were in 19th century England. And the British, they did this pretty much everywhere they colonized, from India to Hong Kong to Singapore. They retained a close connection with their motherland such that they ended up influencing that the people around them much more than the people around them influenced them. Now, without commenting on the pros and cons of colonialism, there, there's a useful parallel here with the Christian life because this is, this is kind of how we're supposed to live. The Bible teaches that we are aliens and strangers on this planet. This is no longer our home. This world exists in rebellion to God and his ways. The world hates God and his ways. And we did too at one time, but in coming to Christ by faith, God transformed us and also enrolled us in his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Still living this world, though, now becomes increasingly apparent, though, this, this world isn't our home. We are not of this world. We walk a different path with a different direction and a different 
destination. And so we're pictured like aliens, strangers, pilgrims, just passing through this world onto a better country, which is where? Heaven. We've been made citizens of heaven. We're not there yet, but it's our new homeland. And so God wants us, while we're still here, though, to live as citizens of heaven. For now, we're still in the world. We'd rather be there, but for as long as we have on this place, he wants us to live as heavenly citizens. And part of this work involves creating these, these little outposts of heaven, you could say, little little categories or, or concepts of the, the heaven on earth, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants us to live heavenly lives here on earth, partly to defend against the darkness. The darkness wants nothing more than to stamp out the light. So all the more so, the church needs to stand together in the light and to stand firm with one another, but also partly to shine in the darkness. We should live lives that reflect the goodness of our king, that we would do more to influence the world around us than they would influence us, that some might be themselves taken from the darkness and brought into the kingdom of the light. Even though we're in a dark land, we are to walk and live as citizens of heaven. What does this heavenly life really look like? Well, just imagine how the saints and and angels live in heaven right now. Think about how they rejoice in heaven and obey God in heaven, worship in heaven, how they love one another and serve the Lord in heaven, how they're perfect in unity in heaven and obey God in heaven. All the ways they live before God now, and, and we will one day, that's how God wants us to live now. That, that's our homeland, our motherland, and God wants us to create a little outpost of that land here on earth where we walk like them and talk like them and, and dress like them, so to speak. We represent our new king. And this morning we're going to find out even more about what this heavenly life really looks like. We're going to find out how our heavenly citizenship should truly impact our earthly lives. So you can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're nearing the end of our journey through the book of Philippians, here at the last chapter. But there's still some important lessons left. In fact, it's here in this final chapter that Paul unloads just like a salvo of application. Uh, After everything we've learned, here comes a, a load of application. And notice how it all begins, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. The key command here is to stand firm, but notice that first word. It begins with that first word, which is, therefore. The message is to stand firm in the Lord, but it begins with, therefore. It has to be understood in light of what Paul just said. And what did he just say? What have, been, what have we been learning for several weeks in Philippians 3? Well, back at the end of chapter 3, Paul was building this contrast between two ways, two walks. There's the way of the world, who, verse 19 of chapter 3, whose God is their appetite, whose end is destruction. That way ends only in judgment. But then in contrast, there's the way of the Lord, 
whose Savior is Christ Jesus and whose end is heaven. Look back at chapter 3, verse 19, or uh, 20 and 21, rather. In contrast, he says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Last time we learned about this play on words with citizenship. Philippi was a Roman colony, so most of them were Roman citizens, and they prided themselves on their Roman heritage. They didn't live in Rome, obviously, but they lived like they did. Their Roman citizenship greatly guided and influenced their daily lives. And so the point Paul is making here very relevantly is, well, as Christians, God has given us a new citizenship, a dual status. He's made us citizens also of heaven. And the point is that new citizenship should even more so guide and influence our daily lives. We are to live as citizens of heaven. Paul actually said this back in chapter 1. You might not remember, but just flip back to Philippians 1 and look at verse 27. This was his main opening admonition after a lengthy introduction. His first real admonition, he says, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We said he'd have that phrase, conduct yourselves, in the Greek, it, it literally means to live as good citizens. That's what it means. We are to live as good citizens of the gospel, reflecting the gospel in, a, in our life. But notice why. Back in verse 27, it says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, what does he say? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Notice at the end we see again the two ways, way of the world, way of the Lord, two destinations, destruction, salvation. He repeats that the main command, or really this is where he gives the main command, stand firm in the Lord. You just have to stand firm. But also notice the connection between their ability to stand firm or the command to stand firm and the purpose in doing so. That they might stand for the Lord and, and do so together rather. Their standing firm is not just alone, but they need to stand firm. And he says, one spirit, one mind, striving together for the gospel. The means I meant to say of their standing firm is not alone, but together. They're not meant to stand firm separately, but, but as one, leaning and relying on one another to stand firm in the gospel. You can see a unity emphasized here in their striving. This unity is all the more important seeing that they have opponents, which he mentions here. Enemies of the cross of Christ, he would say in chapter 3. People who are just trying to, to knock them off balance. It's like you're trying to run your race of faith, and there are people who just keep just pushing you and trying to trip you. They throw obstacles in your path, hoping that you would stumble and fall. But all the more so, if this is true, if, if there are opponents, even within and without the church, all the more so we should run together. 
that you might be able to lean on your teammates, to, to count on them, to help one another stand firm. And this is really what Paul stresses in chapter 4. You can go back to chapter 4. We've seen especially in chapter 3, he, he's building this analogy of running the race. We've seen the need to, to run your race of faith with endurance, to run your race in the right way, in the right direction, to run your race heavenward with an eye toward heaven. But here in chapter 4, really get to the emphasis of, of running together. You're also meant to run together with, with one another. You're not meant to run alone. Now, the only difference, though, is in chapter 4, as Paul so often does, he mixes metaphors. We go from running and walking to standing, standing firm. Chapter 4 is all about standing firm. When it comes to striving for Christlikeness and growing in the faith, it's time for, it's time for walking. It's time, it's time for running. Press on. But when the emphasis is living in a dark world and maintaining the light in the face of opponents who are trying to take you down, well, the emphasis is on standing. Just stand your ground, stand firm, don't fall down. It's kind of like what Paul said over in 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter, you might remember, he talks about the resurrection and our future resurrection in Christ and our heavenly home, the whole chapter. And at the very end, he gives just one verse of application, the very last verse of chapter 15, all this whole talk about our heavenly home. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15:58, in light of all this, he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. In light of these truths, in light of our heavenly home, as the darkness presses in, we are called to stand firm, be steadfast, immovable, don't, don't be shaken, and just let the light shine. Keep living in the light in a dark land. This is a call here for spiritual stability. Same thing in Philippians 4. The unstable Christian can't respond to life's trials and temptations, at least not rightly, they're constantly losing their balance, going astray, getting into trouble, and hurting others in the process. In good times, they may be fine, but, but they're like a boat that's unanchored, and when the wind picks up, off they go. They're like the disciples. The disciples were great sailors in good weather. But when the storm came, well, they melted down, resulting in fear, anxiety, worry, division, strife. All of this, in turn, greatly tarnished their reputation as a heavenly outpost. And all this was starting to become a problem in Philippi. And so that's why Paul is telling them to well, just stand firm, hold your ground, live in the light, be steadfast. They needed to live their lives firmly planted on the rock of Christ. Like we heard us saying about this morning, the solid rock is what they needed. What exactly does that look like, though, and, and how do you do that? Well, Paul's going to show us the way. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, In this way, stand firm in the Lord. In what way? Well, in verses 2 through 9, he's going to tell us the way, many ways in which we stand firm in the Lord. This is what standing firm looks like. This is how you do it. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. And look, we likewise are living in a dark world world 
We too, therefore, need to stand firm in the Lord, stand firm in the gospel. And so this picture serves us as well. This is a a timeless lesson for all of God's people. This is how we too must stand firm as heavenly citizens, reflecting the, the character of our king here on earth. And so for the next several weeks, actually, we're going to go through all these verses in chapter 4 and just find out what this heavenly life looks like, what standing firm in the Lord really looks like. How do you get along in a dark world? How do we maintain the light, a heavenly life here on earth? We're going to find out. So you could say through at least chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, it's going to be kind of like a how-to series, I guess you could say, how to stand firm in the Lord. Simple as that, but, but meaningful. How to stand firm in the Lord. And there are many ways that we're going to find. But today, we're just going to look at number one. The biggest way, you could say, especially for the Philippians, one of the most significant ways for them, and in large part for us today as well, number one, be harmonious. Be harmonious. How, how do you stand firm in the Lord? Well, be harmonious. Live in harmony. We're going to see why this is such a big deal for them and for us. And this comes from verses 2 through 3. It's as far as we'll get today. Verse 2. He goes on to say, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this is a very interesting pair of verses, even shocking, you could say. How so? Just remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul in prison in Rome. He would have given it once completed to Epaphroditus, who would then deliver it back all the way to Philippi. And when he got to Philippi, he would read this letter to the whole church. So you can just imagine flipping church. They're gathered together on a Lord's Day. Epaphroditus is back. Everyone's heard that he's carrying a letter from the Apostle Paul. Maybe they're still meeting in Lydia's house. Who knows? But they're all excited, so they gather together in anticipation. They're going to hear this fresh, hot-off-the-press letter from the Apostle Paul. So Epaphroditus gets up. He starts to read this letter to the Philippians in front of the little church there. And eventually he gets to what we call chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, you got a picture. Yodi is in the room. Syntyche is in the room. Probably they're sitting on opposite sides of the room. And everyone, their names are mentioned. Everyone just kind of turns and looks at them. And they go pale. And they start squirming in their seats. I mean, think about it. They just got called out over their personal conflict by the Apostle Paul in front of the whole church. And also, remember, this letter would be read over and over and over again and spread to other churches who would read it over and over. And here we are, 2,000 years later, still talking about Yodia and Syntyche. I mean, how, how would you like if, if your dirty laundry was aired for all to see? If I started naming names up here, I could do it. Some of you would have a heart attack. I, I won't do it. Don't worry. You know, that said, though, believe it or not, Paul is not being mean or insensitive. He's calling out these women in love, knowing they're mature enough to handle it. And it's a needed exhortation. It goes beyond just the two of them, actually. 
and it needs to be said. Don't forget, though, verse 1 comes before verse 2. Before he exhorts them, he reassures them of his love. Back at verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He's piling on his affection for the whole Philippian church. He loves them all. Twice he calls them his beloved in one little verse. He loves them. He cares for them. They're all his brothers and sisters in the Lord. He can't wait to see them. They're his joy, his crown. They're really the, the, the fruit of his labor, his gospel ministry. They're the stamp of approval. And, and because of that, actually, it pains him to see them not quite standing firm, to see them dividing, having division reported among them. That's troubling. And with this in mind, Paul is compelled to say something. He genuinely cares for them and has their best interests in mind, so he must speak up. And it's in this spirit of love with gentleness that he reproaches and reproves, but really exhorts these two women to get along, urges them. He's pleading with them, just come together. Now, I've often said before, and I'll say it again, that if I'm convinced that someone doesn't really care about me, doesn't have my best interests in mind, I really don't care what they have to say about me or to me. But on the flip side, if I'm, cons- if I, if I'm convinced that someone, they, they really love me and they have my best interests in mind, they can tell me anything. Even if it wounds me in love, I'll take it. Like Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So look, this needed to be said for the betterment of the Philippian church If you've been with us throughout our time in Philippians, you know that a huge theme has been what? Unity. One of the main themes of Philippians, unity. Overall, they were a good church, but cracks were starting to form in their foundation. Little fissure lines of selfishness and pride and strife were forming. The thing about cracks is if you don't do anything about them, they tend to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And cracks turn into fissures and crevices and canyons that can no longer be crossed. You realize that every church split starts with church cracks? That's that's good, right? I made that up. I haven't heard that somewhere. Like that's a good one. That's a quote. <laughs> church splits start with church I don't do that too often, but they start with church cracks. Maybe someday someone will quote me on that, right? Well, Paul exhorts them to be of one mind, one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He said, it's all coming together now. They, they need to be one. You trace the whole letter and you see over and over again their need to just come together as one. But it's really not until here in chapter 4 that Paul really gets to what's going on. What's the source of the conflict? He's mentioned it, you know, indirectly or generally, generically. Guys come together, be one, stand united, strive together. All these admonitions. It's really not until here at the end in chapter 4 that he seems to address at least one of the main sources of their division. One of the underlying causes of their division. And it's, it's these two women. It appears that their conflict has boiled over. It has implications beyond just the two of them. We can It stands to reason the church is taking sides. 
And either way, it seems like a, if nothing is addressed, a split could loom. It shouldn't be. The church is supposed to be a community that is united together by the common bond of Christ. That's supposed to be the strongest bond out there. That shouldn't be broken by, by anything, even sin. The church is a place where we hold one another up, where you look out not just for yourself, but one another. You're not seeking to tear others down, but, but build others up and, and help one another to run the race to the end. We've got to run together. But these ladies were not quite running together at the moment. Who were these two women? We don't know much else about them. They were obviously members of the Philippian church. They were also obviously prominent members. Everybody knew them. Their conflict was serious enough and well-known enough to make its way all the way to Apostle Paul in Rome. The news traveled, obviously, through Epaphroditus, but it was so important that Epaphroditus had to tell Paul about these two ladies who were causing quite a stir. What was the nature of their conflict? We don't know that for sure either. It surely wasn't doctrinal. Otherwise, Paul would have just settled it. He would have just told them the truth and settled it. So it was either personal offense where one sinned against the other, or maybe it was personal preference where neither one of them was necessarily right or wrong about something. They just couldn't agree on on some issue. Maybe like churches today, they were dividing over the musical style or the carpet color in the sanctuary or whether or not to put up a Christmas tree, stuff like that. It happens. Now, it's not wrong to have personal preferences, but when you hold on to them with pride, when you're unwilling to compromise in love, when you are willing to sin and split over your preferences, then you got problems. Then the church has problems. When that happens, what is the solution? Well, here Paul proposes two solutions in these two verses, verse 2 and verse 3. The first one, verse 2, is where he urges them to live in harmony. He urges them both to live in harmony in the Lord. Notice he's not playing favorites. He very carefully includes that the word urge in front of both of their names, that they can't claim anything there. He's urging them both equally to live in harmony. Like a spiritual father, he's pleading with them to, to come together as one, whatever this issue is. To live in harmony here translates literally to be of the same mind. To be of the same mind. It's the same word, same phrase Paul used back in chapter 2, verse 2. Just flip back there. Where he said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. There it is. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This phrase doesn't necessarily mean they have to think the exact same things, meaning you can have your personal preferences. You don't have to agree per se on that. But they need to come together. They can't let that stop them from being one in mind and in spirit. They need to come together, even if it means denying their personal preferences. And so don't forget Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Huge passage. Verse 3 of Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. This is, this is essential, critical Christian living. This humility that leads to unity. 
When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to moral living, there's, there's little room for compromise. God's word is clear. When it comes to these personal preference issues or personal offenses, like Jesus said and modeled, it, it's greater to serve than to be served. Just think about any conflict you might be having now with a fellow believer. Not over doctrine, just something personal. Some personal issue, personal preference. And just ask, is it worth really dividing over? Why not just humble yourself? Even just be wronged or just give in. Let the other person get their way. Give them preference. Treat them as more important than yourself. Can you, can you help out your weaker brother and show them deference and preference? Can you be a peacemaker? Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God wants us to be in the church peacemakers, those who bring and invite and create peace in relationships. It's hard work, but when conflict presents itself, how do you respond? When someone offends you, even sins against you, do you respond like like a peacemaker or not? Let me use an example, maybe a a touchy example, but a relevant one. Spousal neglect. Maybe you feel neglected by your spouse. You aren't getting the the quantity time or the quality time you want. I'll, I'll create a scenario, and I'll be sure to use names of people who don't go to our church. So let's use Lydia and Clement from Philippians. Let's pretend Lydia married Clement. And so Clement's been off traveling for work a bunch. He's often gone. When he gets home, he's dead tired. He just wants to relax or go to sleep. Lydia feels neglected and alone and unvalued. But Clement has Saturday off. and He's promised to spend all day with Lydia. They're going to go to a nice dinner in downtown Philippi. Her heart is really set on it. But then a legitimate emergency comes up with work, and Clement has got to go. He has to work Saturday. And she feels obviously offended and even wounded by this, disappointed, So in frustration, she says, well, maybe someday I'll be more important to you than work. And hearing this, Clement now feels like he's under attack. She just doesn't know that the pressure he's under at work. And so he responds in a slightly sharper tone of voice and says, like, you don't even appreciate my hard work. You know, I'm doing this all for the family. But that's not quite what she wanted to hear. He's not understanding her or where she's coming from. And so she fires a salvo back saying, well, you know, it's like you're married more to your job. And what good is all this money in this house if we have no relationship? But now Clement feels seriously insulted and underappreciated. It's like all his hard work has been taken for granted. So maybe he gets into the comparison game. You know, maybe if you were more like Timothy's, Timothy's wife, things would be better because at least she values him. <laughs> I'll stop here. At this point... <laughs> getting a little heated, right? Sounds a little maybe too close for comfort. But you can just imagine where things would go from here. It's it's the downward spiral, we call it. And I bring it up. It's just a perfect example of personal conflict that has probably been happening for all of human history. Both of these people, when you think about it, they had legitimate concerns, though. They each had legitimate interests in this conflict. The problem was they were only thinking about themselves. They were driven entirely by their own concerns and paid no attention to the concerns of the other who weren't showing preference and love and and certainly not the concerns of God in the conflict. These conflicts are always driven by self 
And although I may not start in the realm of sin, it quickly gets there. It's not a long drive to get to the realm of, of sin in these conflicts. And so I wonder, has this ever happened to you? Does this scenario sound maybe a little bit too familiar? And if so, though, what can you do about it? Let's talk solution. That, that happens. This, this happens. We're sinners. This, this has happened to all of us. What do you do? Well, what's the peacemaking response? What does that even look like? I love how Ken Sandy puts this in his book, The Peacemaker. And as I was thinking, it's been a long time since I've plugged that book, so I might as well give it a plug. Such a good book on conflict resolution. He describes how some people have an attack response to conflict. They are peace breakers. If you offend them, they're going to make you pay. They're the yeller, the screamer, the one who name calls, who gets angry. They're often characterized by, well, like I said, anger. At the far end of this spectrum is physical violence. If they can't win a conflict with words, they might use their hands. But the opposite side is also a wrong response. Other people have an escape response to conflict. These are peace fakers. I didn't make that up. That's pretty good, but I didn't make it up either. When conflict comes, they don't want to deal with it, so they run away. They, They find the easy way out. And it is easier to just run and and to neglect the conflict. You don't have to deal with some fight, some conflict. They tune out and they tune into distractions. Sounds appealing because you just don't have to deal with things, but it leaves conflict seriously unresolved and it only leads to later, greater conflict. This tension goes under the surface, it's unaddressed, and eventually a, a huge rift will open up like a sinkhole. And faking peace like this doesn't help anyone either. So these are both the wrong responses to conflict. Peace breaking, peace faking. What is the right response? Well, peace making, being a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does that response look like? We don't have a ton of time here, but I find this is such an important topic that, you know, I want us to just stop for a second, pull over and consider this. Yodia and Syntyche, they could have used a little crash course in peacemaking, and I think the church today can certainly use this as well. The fact is we're, we're all sinners. Even after salvation, we still sin. We're still, because of the flesh, selfish beings. Sin will produce conflict with others by its very definition. So it's just a matter of time before you come into some conflict with your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your, your friends and neighbors, your coworkers person in the pew next to you. So how do you live in harmony in the Lord? I'll just tap into Peacemaker again by Ken Sandy. All we have time for is an outline, but he gives a great outline of how to resolve conflict the biblical way. And so remember these four G's, four steps. Just a helpful outline. It's brief, but nonetheless, number one, glorify God. Glorify God. This, it should be obvious, but it's often not. When we're riled up in the conflict, we're not thinking straight. But you want the right response. It has to start with this right attitude. This is a mindset. Your goal here, it's not to satisfy your desires in the conflict or get what you want. But you're, you're training yourself. What's my goal? It's just trying to glorify God here. You, you program your mind to think like this and respond like this when a conflict comes. You're on the right path. You're not asking yourself, how can I get out of this conflict? Or how can I win this conflict? How can I assert myself? You're simply asking, as a citizen of heaven would, I'm in a conflict, maybe I didn't start it, but how can I glorify God in this conflict? How can my response glorify God 
in this conflict. And if you get there, the first step, you're already on the right trajectory toward the rest. If you don't have the first step, you're likely already going the wrong way and will go the wrong way. Well, this leads to step two, though. If you're concerned, concerned with glorifying God, you'll get number two, which is get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. You know Matthew 7, 5. Christ said, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I'm sure you know about this principle, but in the heat of a conflict, it doesn't jump to your mind because, especially if, if you have the wrong response, you're not worried about yourself. You're consumed with the other person. You're pointing out what they did wrong, how they offended you, how they need to pay and make it up. You're just concerned about them. That's usually the first thing that pops into your mind. But unless you first deal with your own contribution to the conflict, you're only going to be escalating things. Rather, first, in humility, Christ himself tells us to honestly evaluate yourself and just ask, how have I contributed to this conflict in any way? And then just own it before you even concern yourself with what the other person has done to offend you or sin against you. You deal with you first and repent. If you've sinned against them, repent. Seek their forgiveness. If you've offended them, apologize and make it right. We're all very prideful in our flesh. This is very hard to do because we want to be right. We want the other person to be wrong in our flesh. But if you would simply humble yourself in this step and really do this, Nine times out of ten, I would say it has an effect of humbling the other person as well. It really cools them down. A gentle word turns away wrath. And this has an effect of just letting the conflict simmer away while dealing with your part. This is an essential step to being a peacemaker. And after this, then you can, number three, gently restore. Gently restore. It doesn't say gently condemn. Gently restore. That's what you're trying to do. After you take the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And that needs to happen, though. Instead of pretending that the sin or conflict doesn't exist, you need to graciously show your brother his sin and love and call him to repent. As you show him his sin and call him to to do the right thing and repent before the Lord. A word to the wise here, this should always be done personally and privately. Like Matthew 18, 15 tells us, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Also remember, your goal here, it's not to condemn, but to restore. You're not not even judge. You don't judge. The Lord judges, per se. Your goal is to restore. And you have to remember that you're just as much a sinner as the other person. We're all saved by grace. And so treat the person with the same graciousness you would want to be treated. When you sin before the Lord, you ask for his Grace and mercy? Well, show them grace and mercy. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you also will not be tempted. Lastly, number four, go and be reconciled. Go and be reconciled. This is the final step where the conflict is not simply over, but it's reconciled. There's real reconciliation. Both parties commit to restore the damaged relationship. Forgiveness is exchanged both ways, where both parties commit 
to forgive one another to the same degree, in the same way that we're forgiven by Christ, which means no holding grudges, no bringing things up at a later date, using it against them. How do you want the Lord to forgive you? Say, well, I forgive you, but I'm not going to talk to you anymore. We, we don't want to be forgiven like that. Just complete, unconditional forgiveness. So, likewise, forgive one another and be reconciled. This brings true peace and reconciliation. And realize your conflict with others is critical in your relationship with God. Like Jesus said in Matthew 5:23, it says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. This is high stakes, actually, that this can affect our walk with the Lord. So be reconciled. This is a brief reminder, but at least see how important it is to God that you live in harmony with one another especially in the church. This is supposed to be this outpost of heaven on earth, this little snippet of the kingdom where we reflect unified lives that by our oneness, the world may know Christ is Lord. This can't happen if we let conflict win. Now, I know, though, all, all that being said, things aren't always that simple, and conflict isn't always resolved with a nice, tidy bow tied around it. It's always quick and easy. It's not always that way. Sometimes our preferences are strong. And especially when you get two prideful people who come together who aren't willing to humble themselves to resolve the conflict, well, you're going to get real trouble. And so what do you do when neither side will truly humble themselves to come together? Well, back to our passage here in Philippians 4. Paul advocates a second solution to resolve conflict. Remember, here we're talking about how to stand firm in the Lord, how to live as heavenly citizens. And first, we're looking at being harmonious, to live in harmony. And so Paul tells these two women in conflict to do just that, to live in harmony, be of the same mind. But sometimes you need a little help. And so Paul proposes a second solution to help them resolve conflict, and that is basically counseling. That's, that's essentially what he gets at in verse 3. He's recommending counseling. Look at verse 3. It says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These ladies are in need of some other peacemakers that's gotten that far they need a skilled man or woman of God who can come alongside them and bring the word to bear on their conflict and shepherd them through this resolution. Specifically, Paul calls on several people to help. First, this true companion to help them resolve their differences. Here's another mysterious figure. We don't know who this is. Some have suggested it's Epaphroditus or Timothy. Some have taken the Greek word true companion as a proper name, which in the Greek is syzygous. So they think this guy's name is just Syzygous, and you know, Paul is help, telling him to help these ladies. We don't really know, though. Whoever he was, he was known to the Philippians, and he was so close to Paul that Paul didn't even need to give his name. And so that tells us enough that this is, at the very least, one of the church leaders. This was almost certainly one of the church leaders. Don't forget, back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, 
this letter was addressed with a special reference to the elders and deacons of the church. Paul didn't often do that, but he's got a special eye towards the leaders of this church. The same goes with Clement and the rest of Paul's fellow workers. Again, we don't know anything about this guy Clement, but this title for these fellow workers again, suggests that these were likely leaders in the church of Philippi. Paul uses that word for those who labor with him. So in all, Paul is seemingly calling on the leadership of the church to come along these, alongside these two women and help them resolve their conflict. And here we find another just fitting application for the church today. Are you engaged in a conflict, but it's not going away? It's just not getting resolved. You you want it to, you wish it would, you try your best, you just feel unequipped, maybe your own sin gets the best of you or the other person just not coming together. You butt heads with this other person just a little bit too much. So what should you do? Well, get counsel. Call in for some help, some support. You need to lean on someone else as a peacemaker and, and don't wait. Don't wait for the World War III crisis get some help. This word for help was used over in Luke 5 as well, where Jesus, he told Peter to cast his net into the water. And Peter did so and pulled it up and it was brimming with fish. So much so the net was starting to tear. And so Luke 5, 6 says, they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And if I can just use this as a word picture, it's great. Sometimes you've got a burden to bear that's just too big for you too big for you to bear by yourself, a load, a conflict, a difficulty. You just can't haul it in. You can't power it through. Maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you're just not skilled enough or or mature enough. But look, don't be ashamed or embarrassed to ask for help. If the net is starting to break, especially get some help while it's just a little tear. Don't wait for the net to be burst open. All the fish are gone. Then you're dealing with just catastrophe. You're just trying to pick up the pieces of a disaster. Rather, be proactive, not reactive. And don't let your pride get in the way of of seeking help from your pastors, your elders, your mature Christian friends. Throughout Philippians, I've mentioned several parallels with the Corinthian church. The Philippians, they were potentially heading down this trajectory that could take them to, to be like the Corinthian church, which wasn't the best. You know, they had a lot of issues and problems. And we learn about another problem with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6. Some believers in the church were in conflict with one another, and they couldn't resolve their conflict. So what did they do? They sued each other. They took one another to court to settle their differences. And essentially, they were placing themselves to Christians who submit to Christ they were placing themselves under the authority of this unbelieving judge to settle their differences. Do you see a problem with that? Paul did, and he sharply rebuked them. 1 Corinthians 6, 5. He says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who is able to decide between his brethren? Verse 7. Actually then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? Sometimes it's better just to suffer a wrong, to suffer some injustice than to let the church of God be torn apart like this. That's not worth it. Better yet, though, seek wise counsel. 
How about just do that? Seek wise counsel. Seek a godly person who can administer the word of God to bring reconciliation. And since we're on topic, I might as well plug here our our new associate pastor who's formally trained in biblical counseling. As you guys know, we just double our staff just like that. So take advantage of it, though, and if you need help, you have resources to get some help. Do whatever it takes, though, to pursue peace and live in harmony. Especially in the church, this is an essential part of our walk and our witness. If you are living with strife in your life and division, your walk is crippled, your witness is crippled, the heavenly outpost is diminished. So live in peace and harmony with one another. Reflect the unity of our homeland. And in this way, stand firm in the Lord. There are many ways, many more to come. But in this first way, stand firm. Stand as one. In the words of Peter, 1 Peter 3.8, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We are those who have received from God what? Nothing but blessing. We should be cursed, but we got nothing but blessing by grace. So let us live as those who treat others the same way and just give blessing. Let your life be a blessing to those around you. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we we cry out to you this morning and asking for even more of your grace and more of your help in our lives. We seek, Lord, to be united as one. We are your church. We stand as one. We sang it this morning, and it's true. At the same time, we're, we're still sinners. We're still left on earth. This is not our home. It's a dark land, and we still have the sinful flesh. And this creates problems even within this little outpost that you have given us to create. And our sin divides us from you, from one another. I pray, Lord, though, that your grace extends even further into our lives to, to humble us. We need humility, the chief virtue of a servant of Christ. For, Lord, you are opposed to the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And may we just humble ourselves over our sin, over our conflict, to, to seek reconciliation. It's not always up to us, but so far as it is, Lord, may we live at peace with other men. At the very least, may we not be the ones who who cause or contribute to conflict, but may we be peacemakers. Work in us, Lord. Sharpen us, convict us, grow us. It's not easy to be peacemakers. And by your grace, we know you can and we trust you will. For any here in conflict, Lord, I pray you you work on their hearts. You convict them this morning to to humble themselves and come together in love, to exchange forgiveness. There's no winning. But Christ is one. the the battle over sin. And and in him there is true reconciliation. We all stand by grace. And so may may we show that grace to one another. Help any in conflict to to resolve, to just show unconditional, undeserved love in Christ and come together. And for those with greater needs, may they, they come forward for help, get counsel, and just see how the word of God through the Spirit is so effective to mend broken lives and broken relationships. Lord, you have the power in your word, through the spirit. And so may may help be found when needed. Bless us this morning. And as we walk in unity, may the world know that we are one and our Lord is one, that that Christ is Lord. Uh, to, To your glory, Lord, all for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.